This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey guys, welcome back once again to the MCU Lorecast. I'm Captain Shenko. And I'm Psych88. So, this week, we are diverging from the Fox-oriented Marvel films and jumping headfirst into the flagship film for what the MCU has been. No joke, probably the most important comic book superhero movie to exist because of the extended universe that it proceeds to create. But we're going to get to all that. What film are we talking about today? Well, uh, I would say welcome to season two, and we are talking about Iron Man. All right. I already hear that sick riff, like just, (laughs) you know? This, oh God, this, this movie was so good. I have so many good things to say about it. And, you know, a few, one or two little gripes that we'll end up going to, but Every film has its sour grapes, and if my one or two little complaints are the worst thing about this movie, it is what it is. This movie is a good time. Uh, Let's just say that. Uh, And and definitely, not to be understated, very, very, very important and a massive changing point for Marvel. Uh, The popularity of this film made it possible for superhero media to become a thing that's taken seriously. That's not something you should discount. Yeah, I mean... The Fox movies, they helped. Spider-Man established that you can do a movie where the protagonist's face is masked for a good portion of the time. So that was very beneficial. X-Men established that people want stories that have kind of a team behind it. Before we get too far into it, we should go ahead and give our lovely Genesis spoiler warning real quick here. If you're looking for a spoiler-free zone, sorry, lovelies, you are in the wrong place. Thanks, Jen. And also, a personal, like, note for, I guess, both of us, really. So, this movie will be tied into a lot of current events, or at least very recent events, and the two of us will have opinions on those events and how they tie into our lives and, and entertainment, which we are allowed to have. If you disagree with them, you are... By all means, allowed to. But if you can't share it with us in a means that is conducive and constructive, keep it to yourself. We sit at the grown-ups table here. And if you're not willing to step up to the bar and have some decent points and have a discussion and a back and forth and not devolve into calling and finger pointing and, you know, red herring chasing, that's not what we're here for. There's no intelligent exchange that's going to take place. There's no player here. So, let's dive into it. So, we get this really nice uh, scroll of magazine covers, right? Starring Tony Stark's father and his legacy from World War II being a pioneer in weapons control, right? And then he dies in a tragic accident, leaving his very young son, very young Solaire, to his fortune in his company, who steps up to kind of 
bolster him and take over the company until he's old enough to really to really do that. The good buddy Obadiah Stane steps up. And then Tony turns 21 and takes over the company. Uh, he's graduated with, you know, honors, summa cum laude, everything. He's a genius, right? He excels in his studies. He graduates college early. He's, you know, genius billionaire. And then we get to all the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all the good stuff. Yeah. He quickly follows in his father's footsteps and becomes a weapons tycoon. And this is shown pretty clearly right here at the beginning uh, with him showing off new weaponry to the military. But we kind of jump back and forth. Anyway, he's debuting a new weapon for the U.S. Army. Uh, it's this crazy missile that fires into the dunes, explodes into a million places. And big celebration. Tony's being Tony. <laughs> Drinking, having strippers on his plane. Uh, stuff that probably wouldn't fly with Disney now. Yeah, it probably helped this was a Paramount production at the time. Because you know, Paramount had bought the rights to Iron Man back in the 90s to bail out uh, Marvel, who was going bankrupt during that time. So yeah, this is a Paramount production with Marvel helping at the time. Our good man Kevin Feige stepped up had his he's had his little thingies in a lot of marvel projects since like the beginning so he's probably who we really should thank when it comes to a lot of this he's kind of keeping this ball rolling and keeping it interesting anyway he's tony's shown in this caravan getting taken out to the site where he's on his way back or whatever they're driving through the desert they're following another vehicle and tony's just jiving with these soldiers he's making jokes he's cracking wise they're having a really fun back and forth and one of the guys asks if he can have a photo with tony and then he gives them a little bit of a hard time about flashing gang signs yeah it's very organic and honestly that opening scene is it almost it it really conveys uh robert Downey jr's way of uh, it establishes him very quickly as tony stark like, just, he nails it. In those first three minutes, he is Tony Stark. And, like, that's it. That's, that's done. I think there were two roles that Robert Downey Jr. was born to play. One is Sherlock Holmes. Um, I love Benedict Cumberbatch's Sherlock Holmes, but Robert Downey Jr. still lays it as uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, yeah, and, we're talking about two different Holmes in that case. Yeah. Uh, but then he's also born to play frickin' Tony Stark. Uh, he yeah. knocks it out of the ballpark. There is not another actor on this planet, I don't think, that could have played Tony Stark and owned that role like RDJ did. Uh, he is nearly inseparable from his character because I think he influenced a lot of himself um, with Tony. Because they are very similar, they come from a very similar backstory, and a lot of that can be explained when we get to Sykes' portion talk about the history of a lot of things happening in RDJ's life prior to filming Iron Man become pertinent when he plays a character like Tony Stark. Indeed. We'll, we'll cover that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, they they keep going down the caravan. They're goofing around, taking pictures, and then, boom, explosions start going off. The first vehicle blows up in the road. Uh, the guys in his truck jump out, and they tell him to stay where he is. What does he do? Not, Not that. that. Uh... <laughs> He dives out of the vehicle, and this nice little 
Silver Bomb plops down in the sand and the rocks right in front of him. And right on that side, what is he? Stark Industries. <laughs> His logo. <laughs> oh, just that logo that you slap on literally everything that you own. <laughs> uh, and he gets this, I need my brown pants look on his face. <laughs> we got to stay yeah. reasonably censored. This is uh, not quite a family show, but... We do try to keep it clean, yeah. like, language-wise. So yeah, Tony needs his brown pants. <laughs> and uh, gets blown up, and then the last thing we see is it kind of shows the smoke clearing, but it's also kind of fading out, is Tony with his chest covered in blood. And then him getting grabbed out of the sand, cuts to black. Tony wakes up, in a cave. It's dark. It's gross. It is a far cry from whiskey on the rocks with strippers on poles on your private jet. Yeah, this is definitely no Four Seasons. No. He is so out of his element in this moment. Terrified. He doesn't really know what's going on. Uh, on rewatch, watching as RDJ kind of pulls that tube out of his nose because he doesn't like <laughs> how it feels. Doesn't get easier with time. No, that that one was shot really well. Yeah. Like <laughs> it, it was quite quite realistic, and um, the sound and the visual quite graphic. But you know, really shows his personal struggle, and I guess I'll allow it. <laughs> I think the more terrifying aspect of it, though, was waking up to find a magnet embedded in his chest that's hooked up to some sort of car battery, like. like Hey, this- I'm not gonna lie. If <laughs> dude, if I was like that, like, oh, I'd be freaking out. Yeah, it's like, hey, guess what? While you were unconscious, this doctor in a cave drilled a three and a half inch hole in your sternum and put an electromagnet in there. You are currently hooked up to a car battery with a bunch of sketched looking guitar wires. Um. In effect, they're keeping the shrapnel from entering your heart and killing you, and all of this ex- is explained by our good buddy Jensen, who is... Ah, uh, Jensen. Who is just too pure for this world. Uh, we didn't deserve Jensen. No. Tony didn't deserve Jensen until he did, and the world did not deserve Jensen. Uh, he is the the buddy when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place that everyone needs in your life. Yeah. And he also serves as the plot device for all the languages that are being tossed Tony's way as the terrorists who have kidnapped him tell him, hey, you know that missile launcher that you have designed for the military? Want it. And you're going to make it for us or you're going to die. Well, there's really no or, but you know what we mean. And he says no way. Uh, so they waterboard him and we get we get a, a horrible couple of seconds of him getting the absolute crap beat out of him he's going through the ringer they're trying to break him because they know that he's kind of a soft playboy rich boy used to having that gold spoon in his mouth they know they can break tony and he lets them kind of like they give him a tour they show him everything he's they've got which is like all of his tech which angers him further and they make the deal again and apparently at some point he made the decision to, uh, you know, trick them. And so he's like, yeah, all right, I'll build your missile, I guess. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, they're taking yeah. apart those missiles and they're pulling, I forget what the element is, uh, but he's got a, palladium. Very, palladium, a very small amount out of each one. 
and he basically tells Yinsen, all right, that's how you get this out of this one missile. Go do those other ones. And there's more more than four. <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. quite a few. He's got his work cut out for him. And what are they building? The thing that becomes very, very important throughout not just this movie, but on um, is it influences a lot of the technology that we see in the film. It is the arc reactor. And he's literally got a box of junk and his brilliant mind. And he miniaturizes a technology that his dad kind of started and that he kind of pushed into a bigger thing. And they have the big prototype, the big gigantic, quote unquote, clean energy uh, building. And it's power, you know, it's it's powering a bit. Uh, but nobody's really behind the project. It was kind of a, oh, your dad did this, so you should maybe kind of look into it. But we're not really a an energy company we are a weapons manufacturing company it's not really the the vision that we're going for because you know we don't need clean efficient energy for everyone for really cheap and perfectly because we're destroying the planet or anything we need more guns and more weapons to blow up other people when they make us angry yeah no clean energy is for those dirty communists yeah so he miniaturizes the arc reactor and he plants it in his chest to continue powering the electromagnet so he doesn't have to be uh, porting around a car battery like it's a newborn babe. Uh, <laughs> I think even at one point he kind of like had it strapped to him like a baby. <laughs> and he's got the wires coming out and he's trying to work. It's just not really conducive to the work environment. No. Uh, the terrorists kind of catch wise when they watch them just playing Mancala, I think. Uh and they're like, why aren't you working? You are supposed to be building the Jericho missile. This doesn't look like the Jericho missile. Also, why is your chest glowing? It wasn't doing that before. And and Tony's like, it helps me work. It helps me work. I made it for myself so that I could work more efficiently and build you an even better Jericho missile. And Yinsen is playing the translator between parties. Because like you said, he he's having a bunch of languages thrown at him. And without Yinsen, Tony would just be getting screamed at in a bunch of bunch of languages he has no comprehension of. Right. And we get the the big bad who comes through, uh, the big bad for Act One at least, and he struts stuff. He he's like he's well spoken. He's got well spoken English. You know he he knows his history. He's so much smarter than you know all of his terrorist goons. So obviously he's the one in charge. Uh, and from there, it's, all right, now build me my missile. And Tony gets to work on not quite a missile. It's got (laughs) rocket powers, at least, but... One might argue that the top portion is kind of missile-like. Not quite. Yeah, when you streamline it. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, it is going to take flight, perhaps. (laughs) Briefly. (laughs) The, the success of the flight is yet to be determined, but, you know, even the Wright brothers had to walk before they could fly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, our boy Tony is just too smart to do the walking and the, and the... Actually, even the crawling, he skips from rolling around, flopping on the floor, not being able to hold his head up, to dead sprinting faster than Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, we get some nice flashbacks, or not flashbacks, but uh, just, you know, montages of him working. And uh, surprisingly, 
Tony Stark is in very good blacksmith shape for a socialite playboy. Um, yeah, like- they, I remember I watched an interview when the Avengers was getting ready to gear up, and they had taken screen caps of all the Avengers' biceps, and they told all of the actors, they're like, you have to guess which actor these biceps belong to. And that picture of RDJ from Iron Man hitting the uh, faceplate for his suit with his really good biceps, you know, is is part of that screen cap. And Chris Hemsworth goes, oh, that's me. (laughs) And the host running the (laughs) show, he goes, that is Robert Downey Jr. (laughs) And they zoom out and you can see it. And I mean, true enough. And you know what? I've watched a whole lot of Forged in Fire. Uh-huh. I have done a seminar with uh, Doug Markaida, and maybe I can tell a story about that in later shows, because um, fighting styles do come into play uh, in later films, not not really in this one. Um, yeah, and, sorry. Uh, we're, just, we're just not hitting your forte. We've done, you know... Like, we've had a know, lot of C- CGI fights, <laughs> a lot of jumping around, a lot of super dy- dynamic things, and now in this one... It's a dude that can fly and a bunch of guns and explosion. Yeah. Um, he punches something. Yeah. Like a couple of times, but and, like, know, let's face it. His escape, plan, <laughs> his escape plan was solid. They go through, you know, they're getting him suited up. We kind of skipped a couple things. Let's get back to where yeah, we were Yeah, we can but, skip. <laughs> all right. Uh, anyway, They've seen it. <laughs> eventually, right, we get to where... They're getting ready for their big run to the finish. They've completed the suit as best they can. They've run every diagnostic they can possibly do with their extremely outdated, even for 2008 technology. And Mm -hmm. Tony's getting suited up. They've got very rudimentary safety gear. It's kind of uh, reminiscent of a fire suit or maybe a dog bite suit underneath uh, so he doesn't... yeah, uh, it's bi- yeah, it's basically Smith's gear. Gear, you know, yeah. it's the welding gloves. Protect it's yourself. the welding. Yeah, no burns. It's gonna get a little bit warm in there. You are bright white steel, pretty much baking in the desert sun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's also very reminiscent of uh, medieval armor. Uh, you know, you gotta put on so many layers of understuff before you even get on your plate. And it's so that's reminiscent of of the knight, which is that's uh, a nickname that Iron Man does have, you know, that he's he's the knight. He's the knight archetype. And so that plays into that very well. And like, have you ever not put on enough layers under chainmail? Anyone who uh, cosplays or does Ren Fair or whatever, have you ever like not uh-huh. put enough under your chainmail and it like pinches whatever skin is showing underneath oh, yeah. your already layers and it's hot i live in florida it's hot <laughs> <laughs> I, I do uh, the medieval fair here in oklahoma uh even in the first weekend of april well it's a coin toss but it's hot or it's freezing um but yeah it it can suck uh we've had several injuries related to armor just because it wasn't put on correctly or or something else but yeah so, but to get back to Iron Man, um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's suiting up literally. Yeah, um, yeah. Jensen has to deal with uh, Hungarian, which apparently, out of the like six languages the man knows, isn't one of them. And unfortunately, it's premature in their plan to escape. 
and Jensen has to, once he gets power going, he runs off to buy Tony more time. And then the armor kicks on. And then it's absolute mayhem from there. I mean, it's horror. It's like, it's the scary horror stuff that it's played in reverse. He's the big bad monster coming to get you. It's really fun. It reminds me of the Cybermen from Doctor Who. <laughs> a little bit because that suit yeah. that that first suit is a little bit Cybermen esque, uh, and I'll tell you the Cybermen freaked me out just a bit. I I, I don't I I even like the Daleks better than the than the Cybermen like freaky. But anyway, um, Tony is just wreaking havoc on these terrorists. He's basically bulletproof. He's taking shots and he's flamethrowing and shooting and rocket launching his way to high heaven. Uh, yep. These guys don't really stand a chance. One guy does end up getting a lucky shot on the knee joint and the suit kind of buckles, but then it recovers and then he just blows the guy up. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> He's like, before Ow, we that can hurt. escape. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, our... Um, our best friend, our sweet, sweet cinnamon roll Jensen. He's not going to make it. Nope. That was always the plan. He wanted to be with his family. And the way to get back to his family was to make a heroic sacrifice. Because, unfortunately, like in the incident that he had explained a bit earlier, uh, while he was kind of playing a game and trying to bond with Tony a little bit, and humanize him and get him to understand the gravity of the situation and what... The people who had him held captive were capable of. Uh, Jensen explained that in his village, um, the shrapnel would enter the chests of the people that uh, were too close to the explosions, and the shrapnel would really slowly crawl its way through the body until it eventually punctured the heart and killed you. And he said that they were called the Walking Dead. Uh, unfortunately for Jensen, his family met an unfortunate early end at the hands of these people who had taken him captive. Probably because they knew he was a scientist and they knew he was intelligent and could probably figure out some of the technology that they needed. And then they were able to capture Tony Stark by sheer luck, pretty much, because of um, some nefarious actions on the part of one Obadiah Stane. (laughs) (laughs) Oopsie poopsie. You mean the guy with the last name Stane is the bad guy? What? What? We haven't gotten quite there. Um, so, you know, Stark Stark recognizes the sacrifice. And he, up to that point, he hasn't had anyone sacrifice anything for him. But here's this random stranger who you know, saved his life and helped him build the suit. And he's died for Tony. Uh, that's that's an eye-opener for anybody, I would, I would think, I would hope. Um... So anyway, he makes his way out. He has another big standoff with the rest of the terrorists, blows them all up, and then tries to take flight in the Mark One. Eh, Yikes! He gets he gets height, but let's not call it flight. <laughs> At that point, it's really just missile. It's just the missile fuselage tied to his feet and just pointed upward. I think Toy Story has a line for this one. He was falling mm. with style. Uh, and yeah. Also, have you ever landed in sand? Yeah, it doesn't feel That's, good. That stuff does not give. No. I, he really should have bounced. 
at least once. But instead he somehow craters into the sand there and survives it without much to show for it. Anyway, he gets picked up by the military who's been looking for him this whole time, the last three months. And, His uh, buddy Rhodes. Rhodes there. Yeah. He pulls <laughs> him up and he's like, oh my god, we thought you were dead. He was well, First he's <laughs> like, so how was the fun V? <laughs> and he's, yeah, Tony's just, he's so happy to be alive. He ends up back on a yeah. flight back to the States, uh, escorted by his good buddy, Colonel Rhodes, and ends up having to go to a press conference. But this man, this man needs a cheese. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't, he calls the press conference. Yeah. Because he's going to be, he's going to take responsibility. And so, yeah, he gets himself an American cheeseburger. Uh, thank you, product placement for Burger King. And from there, it's... Well, you know, what happened? Oh, I had my eyes opened. I realized that I'm part of a system that, uh, yeah, I'm, we're completely okay with killing one another. So effective immediately, that's not happening, which we are not a weapons is a shock company to anymore. everybody. Like, we're not a weapons <laughs> And he's like, a weapons manufacturer that doesn't make weapons? That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. And the stocks on Stark Industries start a-dropping. Yep. Um, uh, from, from there, we get into, you know, some of the interpersonal stuff, you know, cause he's back, you know, he's, uh, back with his uh, friends, Pe- Pepper, his secretary, uh, Happy, his, his chauffeur, and he starts working on the Mark II. I, I did love this, like, montage of scenes as he, as you as you start to try to figure out how to become Iron Man. Like, that was a lot of fun to watch. A a lot of it, too, was just improvisation on the part of RDJ because they had him on this really sketch-looking rig. If you ever watch the the behind-the-scenes of the filming of the first Iron Man film, after this, RDJ was like, hey, you pay me a lot of money to do this. I understand that. I'm not going to do my own stunts for the most part unless it's something really close up to the face where you absolutely cannot get the stunt guys in there because getting on that rig sucks. It hurts. It's difficult. My body hurts. I don't like it. And you know what? I think he's entitled to that because he is uncomfortable. And Mm. he does a really good job kind of playing it off as like, oh, I'm Tony Stark and I'm testing out this new thing and I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm basically trying not to fly into the ceiling. He does fail a couple of times. Watching him kind of fly backwards and hit the wall was kind of funny if I'm not, you know, if I'm completely honest. Mm -hmm. It was really funny. Uh, Watching him crash into his beautiful car multiple times. And... That that Shelby, man. Oh, oh. Shelby. And then uh, Dummy, his... Faithful assistant oh, robot Dummy. arm. He uh Dummy's my favorite. I I love Dummy and everyone needs one. If I could have a dummy in my office just to annoy me while I'm filming the podcast, so be it. I would be so happy with that. Uh, but eventually he does we he does yeah. achieve a Mark II suit and it's this pure silver, straight, like, stainless steel-looking... Uh, I think he used pure titanium the first time, which... Yeah. If you know anything about titanium... Uh, 
it, titanium alloy that was yeah it's not light <laughs> um no he is effectively like i don't even know how heavy i know the suit does have obviously quite a bit of mechanical assist on the weight bearing part of the suit um but this is no this is no paperweight this thing is a unit uh he takes and also a- like can we talk about the fact that in the time that he was building the suit he also had to build the armor rig to to you know get him in so he's completely remodeling his garage to put this unit in on top of building this suit in the same time frame of, uh, I don't know, uh, like, you know, whilst other things are happening. And it's just, it's just insane. I think, I think our man Tony suffers from um, insomnia and manic episodes. Um, relatable. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Especially after the trauma he's endured. I mean, I can't imagine someone who has gone through that kind of trauma and then didn't really think that he should go to therapy would be able to manage those things, uh, and he puts all of his effort into being a machinist and building, creating, because that is who Tony Stark is. He is a mover, builder, and a shaker, billionaire, playboy, (laughs) philanthropist, (laughs) (laughs) and a genius. Uh, Yep. Uh, So we got all of those Uh, in there. Yep, there it is. And uh, he gets his Mark II suit, and he takes it on a test flight. He uploads Jarvis into that thing to help him uh, steer the ship, basically. Think about it like Joker and E. They both have to have a hand on the wheel to fly the ship. Yeah. Uh, and we get a slight foreshadowing thing for later about uh, high altitudes and icing mm-hmm. with uh, with titanium alloys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then the woohoo at the end for for not you know, going splat into L.A. there. Yeah, he he gets in a, a pretty narrow scrape there. He's testing the limits and he's not, um, he's kind of recklessly pushing the envelope, so to speak, and flies up and then starts icing and then loses power, as you do. And then uh, when tech gets too cold, technology is not like cold. Also doesn't like no. to be too hot, but arguably too cold is probably worse, at least for the short term. And, uh, Comes crashing back down to Earth, and he he pulls off a uh, re- uh, kickstart right in the nick of time. Flies right over the top of a kid's head, and luckily doesn't... doesn't... At least he wasn't running windows. <laughs> <laughs> Always updates at the most inopportune time, takes forever, you know... So, listen, I'm guilty of this. I'll, I will sit there and I'll be like schedule your reboot and i'll be like "Mm, 24 hours and then 24 hours go by and i'll go give me another 24 hours (laughs) basically until my laptop goes enough and shuts itself off because i've waited too long at this point it can't function right um and so effectively that's what his suit does you get the windows shut down music right He's falling, boy. And then it all of a sudden just goes poof and he, you know, he kicks back on and he takes off and flies home and kind of hovers in the garage and he goes, I can fly. And then crash. That poor, poor car. That poor Shelby. Uh. Oh, man. Did they, I I have to believe, I can't, I, I have to believe that they made like a plastic shell 
to look like a Shelby. Did they, you, did, you're not going to sit there and tell me that they actually crushed that beautiful car. Who has a budget mm, for that? No. No, that's that's a fake of some sort. But still, the the idea they still showed it to us, and it made me sad. Yeah. Um. Anyway, from, uh, he, from he's there, like, he's like, this thing's too heavy. Uh, we gotta we gotta sort that out. Well, also the icing problem, and so they they recome they come back at it with a, a different metal alloy, and I forget the metal he chose. I mean, it's a gold of some sort, and so that doesn't freeze up in ice. And, and you know, then the fr- the the whole render gets completed, and it's it's a fully gold suit. And even Stark's like, "That's hmm, a lot too ostentatious." <laughs> He's like, "How about how about hot rod red?" <laughs> and I love Jarvis. He's like, "Oh yes, sir, totally. Uh, that will totally bring that down." <laughs> it's like, "Yes, that tames it right down, <laughs> sir." You just <laughs> took that from a two hundred dollar car insurance payment every month. To a three fifty car insurance payment every month. You're welcome. <laughs> Tony doesn't care. He's a billionaire. Hmm. Uh, um, then yeah. we get to while that renders and completes, he invites himself to his own uh, fireman's fundraiser event, which you know, as it is his, he has the right to, and he just goes and goes to it. Yeah, it makes moves on his secretary, which. Totally crosses several lines, but it's okay because it's Tony Stark. And it was Paramount Days. <laughs> <laughs> that too. The Paramount Days had their their high points and their low points, and we'll definitely discuss those too. Uh, they got away with a lot more than uh, definitely than what Disney is going to let them get away with in subsequent films. Um, but anyway, yeah, he's at this party. He's having a great time. We get our Stanley cameo. Um, Stanley has had yeah, cameos in every every Marvel film, and we didn't really talk about him too much because it was kind of before it was a really really well known and kind of like highlighted thing. It used to be a lot more subtle, um, but now in most oh, yeah. of them, they in most of the future films up until you know rest in peace Stanley until his passing, um, he had he ended up starting to have speaking parts because people loved it and people wanted to see him. Uh, it's almost like, oh, what's Stanley's cameo going to be this time? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and this time he's uh, he's uh, basically Hugh. Uh, Hugh Hefner. Yeah. He's got the pretty ladies and the red crushed velvet coat. Mm-hmm. The ascot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Tony pats him on the back and says, "Hey, Hef." <laughs> yep. Goes uh, into the party. While... Yeah. Yeah. While while here, he also is bombarded by the reporter from earlier in the movie, which we're not going to really cover about. And she's all, Do you, you know, your company's still doing everything you said it wasn't supposed to be doing. And he's like, what? Do what now? And Stain's there and he confronts Obadiah. And there's this whole like re- kind of revelation as to Stain's character, um, how ruthless he truly is. And that makes Tony upset. He goes home and he's watching the news as he's fixing up uh, the arm gauntlet. And he starts to realize that the flight stabilizers that he put into the hands can also double as blasters. And he does some more work on that poor, poor pre-crushed Shelby. It's uh, never going mean, to get uh, It's not going to get a break, is it? <laughs> it's, I mean, he, he kind of <laughs> just blows up some windows. It, if I... it, that Shelby is dead. Oh, yeah. Uh. 
anyway, he but, yeah, he he is testing his blasters and figuring out his new weapon systems and then he starts, you know, he hears on the news about uh about Gomira and about some of the attacks that are happening, right? From the reporter. Yeah, and and, and and he sees, uh, like in the report, he sees like some of the terrorists that he that had held him captive. They are still alive. They are in this town right now. And this idea crosses his mind of, you know what? I'll just go there in my suit. It's a very traumatic response. He's been hurt by these people, and now he has the means to hurt them back. It's uh, it's a very natural response. Uh, and I think anyone who's ever had um, had a moment of powerlessness in their life, uh, at, specifically at the hands of somebody else, but even other events, you you wish you could do go back and, and be a hero, be better than where you were cowering or whatever it was you were doing or or what. And now this opportunity arises, right? He's got the armor. He no one knows it's going to him because it's a head to toe armor suit so we get a test flight let's go yeah and go he does uh we skip a we skip a several more steps and he is swinging for the fences it is one of the it is one of the more i guess brutal but also best in my opinion one of the best just uh showings of an origin fight as iron man when he just shows up, there's no witty comebacks, there's no need for dialogue, there's just, kill these guys. And he does. I mean, there's no way around it. Iron Man kills these guys. And at one point, that he even has the one um, the one guy with the mustache who, who was directly involved in his uh, holding and in his uh, capture. And he kills all of his lackeys. And then on his way out, grabs the dude and throws him at the feet of the people that he had been just about to kill all of the men and enslave the women and children. And he's like, he's all yours. And then he flies away. Uh, that yep. he he set up a murder, <laughs> regardless of <laughs> how bad the dude is. He knew that those people were going to kill that guy. And he didn't mind it at all. Nope. Which, you know, I mean... I can't say I wouldn't have done the same, to be honest. No, they are not good people. Uh, yeah, but he. But then a, we yeah. get into the humor part because there's a, there's got we got to lighten this up somehow, right? Yeah. Iron Man's just killed a bunch of guys, so uh, whoops, he's triggered the alarms for the U.S. government, who've been obviously uh, monitor monitoring the you know airspace above this area, and like, hey, uh, who who put this here? What's going on? Like, I I feel like the panic in that scene was very genuine because the U.S. government does not like things to change and especially things that change without them knowing it. Yeah, and this is unregistered flight weapons tech that they cannot trace or track very well. Um, the target is too small for their targeting systems to pick up on because it's literally like the size of a man flying out in the whole sky. And uh, so they send out the two fighters to investigate and they're trying to get a visual on the target and they're kind of picking him up on scans, but kind of not because he's so small, they can't really get a visual. And Colonel Rhodes picks up the phone and he calls his good buddy Tony and he's like, hey man, you've got about 
three seconds before we open fire on this thing. Does it belong to you? And, and at first, Tony's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> let me hang up on you. <laughs> and uh, so they give the command to open fire. And Tony has to go on the evasive. And uh, while you're fighting guys on the ground who have guns that can't penetrate your armor, fine and dandy. Have you ever seen the gun on a fighter jet and the kind of ammunition they're pushing? Uh, no. That is considerably larger than uh, your average handgun or even your average AK. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he gets uh, lit up. <laughs> he's, he is inherently more cautious with these kind of th- with this kind of heat. Uh, and he, he starts going on the evasive. And luckily, he is a lot smaller than these fighters, and he can travel just as fast. So... They're having a hard time dealing with his maneuverability. Uh, eventually, they think they've lost him because he drops out of uh, speed and the two jets fly off past him. And obviously, it, it takes that larger object much longer to stop and reel around. And by then, he's not in visual range. Uh, where Where's our guy, though? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, calling his buddy back to be like, okay, look, it's me. No, no, it, it's not just my tech. It's, I'm in it. It's me. <laughs> Call them off. <laughs> and then they're like, there's something on your belly. It looks like a man. And here is our man, Tony Stark, clinging under the belly of this fighter jet like his life depends on it because it kind of does. Oh, yeah. And they try to shake him and they go into a barrel roll. Uh, do a barrel roll. <laughs> yeah, because that always works. <laughs> yeah. And he's flung around and he's, you know, bashing about. He does get flung off, but what does he hit? The other fighter jet. (laughs) And so the the fighter jet goes spinning. The dude rips his chute to eject himself, and his chute's not going off. His chute's not going off. And he's falling, and he's spinning, and he's getting delirious and dizzy because his blood's being forced out of his head by all the G-force that's happening um, because his, his chute is jammed. And Iron Man goes into a free fall, pretty much, nose down, flies up to the guy in his chair, and rips the chute, and he's able to get that chute off just in time so that he doesn't go splat in the desert sand, because he doesn't have a metal suit to protect him when he goes splat in the desert sand. That sand's just gonna shred him if he hits the ground. Chute goes off, it's all Mm -hmm. good, and Rhodes calls back Tony, and he goes... Oh my god, you did it. You gotta tell me what's going on, man. And Tony's like, yeah, okay, cool. I, I gotta, <laughs> you know, he's, he's like, yeah, uh, come by, you know, we'll talk about it, whatever. And then Rhodes is like, you owe me, you owe me a jet. <clears throat> and, uh, <laughs> Rhodes basically. And Tony's like, well, he hit me. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is how it works. Uh, he hit me, it's his fault. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know you, I don't know you anything. Uh, and then he's like, what am I supposed to tell everyone when they ask why this really expensive jet exploded? And Tony's like, oh, just write it off as a training exercise. That's like the normal protocol for this type of stuff, right? <laughs> Which, I mean, Ooh. yeah, kind of. <laughs> Yikes. Um, anyway, so Rhodes is like, I'm not going to do that. And then it cuts to him doing doing that. Doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And what are you doing? Not, not, not that. 
no, I'm doing exactly that. I didn't really have it. He forced me. Uh, and he, he goes in front of the press and he explains, oh, there was an unfortunate incident involving uh, this thing. And then as for the allegations of the, the terrorist cells getting blown up, well, we're, we're, we're looking into it. You don't, you don't need to worry about it. You cannot confirm or deny if the American gov- government has anything to do with it. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, I think he outright clean. denies that the U.S. government had anything to do with it. Yeah, he's but like, we've like, got to keep our hands else. clean. we got to keep our hands squeaky on this one, because I don't even really know what's going on, because my best buddy's got this thing that he's doing, and he's basically told me that there's this crazy thing that he built that's allowing him to evade our most advanced technology, and he didn't really, he was not forthcoming with a lot of that. So I am just as in the dark as you guys. Okay, thanks, Good night. thanks for coming out. <laughs> Yeah. Um, after that, we finally get an idea as to how far uh, Obadiah's involvement is with the terrorist cell that had taken Tony. I would love to know how this group of terrorists got a hold of the Mark One before Shield did, uh, considering how on the ball Shield is portrayed later. But yeah, they recover the Mark One uh, basically in total, which is also amazing considering it's the desert. Yeah, it changes um, every day, and it, they didn't really know where he landed. But they find that faceplate, and our man's with the big old burn on his head is real mad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, he makes the call to Stain to be like, Okay, you give me these suits, and I will give you whatever it is you want. You want Stark's throne. I will help you do that. And Obadiah's like, That's cute, kid. Instead, how about I just take that off your hands there, since you don't know what you're doing with it, and that's fine. Uh, I will relieve you of living here in a minute, and we'll all just call it good. And that's exactly what he does. Mm-hmm. He's got this crazy little uh, men in black type device that causes paralysis temporarily. It's a sonic wave of some kind. It's on a frequency that causes the body to go into shutdown mode. Uh, he's fully aware of what's going on around him, but he cannot move or react to it. And Obi loads up the uh, loads up the suit, takes it with him, and executes everyone in the camp. Well, the soldiers. Yeah. And he jumps back into his uh, his luxurious Chevy Suburban <laughs> that he has out in the middle of the desert. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know but if yeah, you've ever start... driven a Suburban. It wouldn't have made it out there. I promise you. <laughs> You'd have sunk that thing up to the wheel wells before you got halfway out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a little bit of foreshadowing, too, for something that happens later in the because you have to see the technology in action before you can show it with a main character. Of course. And so, after his test flight, um, Tony, they, does he has to change out his arc reactor. Uh, the old one's not sufficient to power... Uh, I mean, he did that before he yeah, built the Mark II. that's true. Um, we do kind of have to talk about it, though, because it's a special bonding moment with him and Pep. Right. And it sets up their relationship move forward. And it, it has its ups and downs, just like it does in the comics. And I'm sure we're going to highlight a little bit of that in the second part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so, you know, earlier Pepper had come in, or Pepper had been ordered to come down and help him exchange out re- reactors. Um, so, cause Tony put it in a more high efficiency model and I, I don't know about you, but, uh, I don't think there's a perfect hole in anyone's chest that just lets you 
dig down to your full fist, basically, into somebody and start moving stuff around. Like, her hand should have been on his spine. I, but I, it's not. Uh, I love the again, part where she's like, oh, there's there's pus in there. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's just leakage from this device that I jammed into myself. It's perfectly safe. Oh my god, I forget what, like, some sort of plasmic, uh... Discharge. Non-something discharge. It's an, it's like, an inorganic plasmic, or something, I don't know. It, yeah. He says something real sciency and highbrow, I don't know, but it was funny. And I loved how dry he was through that, because he delivered everything like he was completely serious. Um, oh yeah, and it was, it's the best it was, way to do comedy. It was great. It was great. That was genius. It was perfect. I loved every second of it. And you know what? Get you someone that's willing to go wrist deep in your chest cavity. <laughs> <laughs> May we all find someone. It's like, hey, honey, <laughs> this crazy <laughs> doctor in the desert drilled a three-inch hole in my sternum. There's something stuck in there. I need you to get it out. Can you get it with your tiny hands? Thanks. <laughs> Just don't touch the sides. <laughs> it's like operational buzz. Uh, yeah, I mean that scene's great. So anyway, that sets up later. She he had told her to get rid of the first one. She doesn't. She framed or she puts it in a glass uh showcase box basically and engraves this is proof that Tony Stark has a heart because he tries to exude this heartless personality which it, he totally doesn't and that's like his entire character is caring about other people but pretending um, that he doesn't while pretending that he doesn't um but so yeah so that's sitting there uh that and that will be later but yeah he comes back from his near brush with death from the US Air Force and Pepper comes in on on him changing out of the armor and and she's like oh my god and he's like okay let's be real you caught me doing way worse which like <laughs> fair but then she's more con- she's not so concerned about his predicament she is concerned about the literal bullet holes uh, yeah. littering his body and um, the fact that he's damaged his suit so that he can't easily take it off. Um, that's That's got to be scary if someone cares about it. Sure. To know that someone is intentionally putting themselves in harm's way. And I think Pepper lives her life saying, Tony, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, only half expecting him to listen and to he it. He does not hear no. <laughs> no, that uh, man does he, not hear he, no. He does. He does as Tony wants, and uh, he basically tells her like, "I I can't stop because if I do, people are going to keep getting hurt, and that's my responsibility. I created those weapons that are people out there to die, and I can't stand here while that's happening and just let it." I have the te- we have the technology. Uh, he has the technology to do better, so he wants, and that's kind of his fatal flaw. Hubris is Tony Stark's fatal. He, oh yeah, he, pride. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he is pride personified. Absolutely, absolutely. And he's he's gonna see it through because he is gonna own his mistake. He's gone through life not really caring about his mistakes or people that he hurts. Until he had someone die for him and saw firsthand what the consequences of those actions were. Innocent people were put in harm's way because he gave some people too much. Uh, Phil Coulson wants to speak to uh, to Tony in, uh, in regards well. in regards to the incident 
with the uh, the fighter jet. And uh, actually, <sighs> in regards to his escape, that's true. Yes, and uh, you know, I I adore Clark Gregg his role. Um, oh yeah, he so became Bill Coulson. Um, to my knowledge, and this is more your feel correct if I'm wrong. Bill Coulson didn't exist in the comics until Clark Gregg, basically, or he was like not important. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean specifically, yeah, uh, Clark Gregg is was first, and then Phil Coulson shows up. Uh, in fact, Phil Coulson is what made, in all honesty, Shield cool. Up until then, it was just Nick Fury and a couple other like you know, muscle-bound idiots in really bad uniforms. But you didn't really have any real personification to S.H.I.E.L.D. other than Fury. Phil Coulson made being a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent cool. And then Maria Hill, too. Yeah, we'll, we we'll talk about her later. Yeah. And let me, let's be real here. Uh, Smolders did a much better job of humanizing Hill than the Marvel comics ever did. She's fantastic. But we we will talk yeah. about her when when her time comes. Exactly, we're we're almost there. <laughs> She's not; it's not too far. Uh, anyway, uh, Tony. Yeah, we to, move yeah. into kind of the last act here. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Tony's been perfecting his design, and Obadiah has obtained the marked the Mark One, he's kind of copied the blueprints, and he's made his own improvements. And you know, I don't understand the trope. Of comics and movies where when the villain steals the idea from the good guy he's gonna make it but he's gonna make it better and you know how he makes it better makes it bigger <laughs> um i mean yeah well i mean you gotta remember this is based off other stuff from you know 20 years beforehand yeah so that's part of it is it's a trope is that, from the time for sure yeah um the going into that scene, oh my god, I love I love that beratement scene between Stain and his lead scientist and Tony the scientists Stark like built this <laughs> in a cave with a box of scraps. And he's like, Well, I'm not Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, just just like like, sir, the technology doesn't exist. And it's like, buddy does. <laughs> it's right there, and he's like, we can't. He's like, just take that, make it small. And the scientist is like, that's not how it works. And he's like, explain Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not so, Tony Stark. I'm not, yeah. I can't comprehend the science that went into that. I can't duplicate what he did achieve with a box of scraps in the in a cave, in the desert, in the dark, with a car battery strapped to his chest. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, from there, uh, Stain shows his true colors to Stark finally, like fully... And is like, yeah, uh, it's time for you to die, kid. I'm gonna just take this here, your last, your your last act here, and we'll call it good. It's like this is your last golden egg. I almost killed you. I ordered the hit. He's giving him all the juicy details. He thinks Tony's luckily. Yeah. Luckily, our girl Pepper came through on the on the assist there. And she left a very handy-dandy souvenir for Tony down in the lab, which was his old arc reactor, which, while not as efficient, can still do the job long enough for him to wreck Stain, because that's all he... Yeah. <clears throat> so he... It may not power the, the new suits all that well, but you know what it will do? Keep his heart beating. <laughs> that's a little bit more important. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he painstakingly crawls down to the laboratory, and he 
almost gets there before his body starts to give out on him. And guess who comes through with the save of the decade? Our favorite <laughs> guy, Dummy. <laughs> and he hands it to yep. him. And Tony's like, thank you, robot arm that I call Dummy. And he smashes the lovely heartfelt present from Pepper in order to save his life. And he jams that thing back into his chest, gets up, calls his buddy Rhodes, suits up, flies off to fight the bad guy. Rhodes really wants his own suit. I mean, I would want my own suit. You kidding? I mean, if my billionaire best friend was, like, showing me all this tech, I'd be like, so when do I get matching? (laughs) You're my best friend, right? Best friends build each other robo-suits. Right? (laughs) I want to be the war machine. Actually, he's got to be Iron Patriot. We'll talk about that. Anyway. Uh, Yeah, uh, anyway, so, yeah, Howard takes a look at, or Terrence Howard, who was playing Rhodes, he takes a look at the suit and he's like, yeah, next time. And that's the last time we see him. Yeah, Terrence Howard had some problems with the studio, and it's pretty well documented. If you do two minutes of Googling about the first Iron Man movie, it's one of the pops up. I guess he didn't like how things were run, he didn't think he was getting paid enough, he thought RDJ was a princess. The whole nine, it was just, anyway... He jumps in one of Tony's yeah. very expensive cars, though, and then yeah. proceeds I don't know to... why, because he drove his own truck there, so... Yeah, it's like, oh, I guess I'll just leave my... I mean, I, too, would have probably traded that Dodge Ram for one of us, but, you know. I mean, sure, but it just doesn't make a whole lot of who, sense. Who am I to like... talk? I'm sure if, if the paint got scratched, Tony just buy him a new... <laughs> potato. True. P- potato, potato. Uh, Tony flies off to fight... Obadiah because he knows that Obadiah's perfect or he's got a suit um, and he, Pepper has to go download some blueprints. Um, yeah, Pepper Pepper's already done that part. Yeah. Uh, she's there now with the Shield team to also take down Stain. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they find the Mark One. They're like, oh, he's building the suit because they don't realize that he's recovered Mark One. Yeah, and it it's not until you know. The precursor giant thing smashes through uh, all kinds of stuff scene that you realize, no, he found one and just blew it up to like 300 times its size. Yeah. And it was pretty scary, not gonna lie, watching those eyes light up behind all those chains. And (laughs) it's just Pepper, you know, he... Yeah, he smashes aside a couple of shield agents like nothing and yeah, and he busts through a door to... It's... It's the precursor scene to later what we'll see in the Avengers with the Hulk. Mm-hmm. And I have a love-hate relationship with those scenes like that, the action sequences within the tight, confined spaces, because it's uncomfortable. Uh, I mean, it's designed to be uncomfortable. It is, and this one does it well. Yeah. There have been scenes that were not so well exited, and we'll talk about those scenes down the line when we get there um, but this one you know you are in the action you feel like crazy stain is chasing you you are there with those shield agents trying not to get shot crushed smashed or punched or otherwise maimed by the giant robot man and meanwhile tony's made his way there because he knew that the that pepper and the shield agents were on their way to arrest stain and he knew that even with the armed agents it was not going to be enough to stop it because they wouldn't be able to stop Tony by any measure. Even a copy has considerable fire. Obadiah Stain, and it, he invented his suit to have gravity. He went bigger, showier, more powerful, bigger explosion. 
because that's what he thought was power. And it is a terrifying thing to see when he's not afraid to use it and he's not afraid of what he's going to do. Or the Tony has to. Nope. Tony has to spend a lot of time playing pickup. At one point, he has to stop a car from flipping over. It takes a considerable chunk out of his battery. Jarvis is counting down for him, and at one point, Tony's like, "Stop counting! I got it." <laughs> uh, yeah, during the the flight scene, uh, you know, four percent. Just put it on the screen. Be quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, you know, like we said, we foreshadowed the icing problem, and so. Tony has Stain chase him up into the upper atmosphere because uh, Stain hadn't taken a test flight for, for his thing yet. He has no idea that the uh, metal that Tony had selected the first time doesn't work in atmosphere above, you know, 4,000 feet or whatever. And whoop, ice. And on a bigger target like the, the Ironmonger's suit, that's a lot of ice. And, you know, he hopes that takes him out. It, unfortunately doesn't we drag on this fight a bit longer um <laughs> I, I always love this line from from stain it's after he's taking out the targeting systems and everything and we're setting up for the big kill and it's like hold still you little you know <laughs> just the way the way jeff bridges gives that line i love it yeah he did a phenomenal job playing a very sinister uh con man businessman mm-hmm. uh he you know, he owned that role very well yeah it's it was <clears throat> the, it me, was a well a real it was a well cast film oh yeah yeah um you know, problems with terrence howard aside i mean i thought he did a great job as Rhodes, but uh, it was a real shame that bridges uh you know they were going to write stain out because hey guess what uh there's a arc reactor explosion he electrocutes and dies basically um it's a real shame because I, I think he, if he had been allowed to continue on as the Iron Monger, it would have been. I think he would have brought a lot of different, something different to the table than you know eventually what we've seen and gotten. But yeah, he did. He did a great job. I think this was the pitfall of a lot of these earlier Marvel films. They had a tendency to toast their villains and just say, "No, they're dead." And they killed off an awful yeah. lot of villains in their first couple of phases. They oh, became yeah. a little bit more careful about declaring characters actually dead dead. Uh, but in the earlier movies, for sure, a lot of them ended up just, like, completely killed. Uh, and this was not an exception to that uh, for the first phase. He uh, definitely got a little bit of a, of a waste. It was a waste because a performance like that um should be applauded they oh yeah he did a phenomenal job and i feel like a lot of the actors who ended up playing the big bad in these marvel movies early on that ended up not getting a second appearance or not appearing again in a later film it just really is a shame and i think marvel's learning that we don't love to see characters permanently die like that unless there's going to be big impact yeah like we'll see later yeah, from there we get to the, like the last bit of this, which was the you know game changer scene entirely. Mm-hmm. Shields concocted this whole story, the whole bodyguard thing. Stark is out there doing you know Stark things, which was true to character. But there's something that's just you know just kind of like you know edging at at Stark to be like, 
but I really, but I really like this. I, you know, it was fun, don't you think? And you know, so we we do the whole press conference again, and he's trying and failing miserably to stick to the cover story. And he finally is looking at that card, and we get the last four words, the whole thing. I am Iron Man. Boom. Da, na, 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 na. <laughs> Here we go. End of the first MC. This is like yeah. a good time. This, yeah, like I was not exaggerating when I said that this was the flagship film for the MCU. This movie had such a big impact worldwide. RDJ's performance as Tony Stark probably goes down in history as one of the most iconic roles in that. I mean, yeah, it's up there with our some of the others that we've already mentioned uh, in our other episodes. Yeah. But he, he defines... is yeah. Tony Stark. He is Iron Man. And we get callbacks to this echoing across 12 more years, um, 14 more years of film. And, and it, it's just incredible. And... Uh, it paved the way for superhero movie to complete. It, it paved the way for a cinematic universe of the scale had not really been seen prior. It had never been like tried. Mm-mm. That kind of Interconnected. interconnectivity, yeah, had never been attempted before in cinema uh, cinematography history. Mm-hmm. Because the, what do we get in our end credit scene? <laughs> uh, Something. Mister Samuel L. Jackson coming in with that eye patch and being all. Uh, spooky, mysterious Nick Fury, director of S.H.I.E.L.D., being mm-hmm. like, Stark, you have no idea the world you've just stepped into. Let's talk about the Avengers Initiative. Yeah. Boom. Like, okay, so that's what get... Marvel wants to do. That's the that's the plan. Yeah. And it's just, it started something insane. But we've waxed poetic for a hot minute now because I feel like we both... <laughs> We had a lot of feelings about this, and and we cannot skip most of what this movie was about because it is all important. And this was a very well-paced and and well-thought-out, methodical film because barring superheroes and barring the content, this was just a good film. It was a well-made period. Mm -hmm. The casting was excellent. The script was great. The characterization and the, um, you know... The cinematography, even for the time, the CGI didn't bother me for 2000, even on a rewatch in modern times. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's very true. Uh, John Favreau knew what he was doing behind that camera, mm-hmm. and that showed. Um, that experience that he got off of this would go on to serve all the stuff that Favreau works on afterward. So, uh, let's uh, go to a mid break because we've got a, a couple of fun things over there. Get on Indeed. to our comic analysis. All right, welcome to the mid-break. Hope you enjoyed the ads. This is the part where we talk about things that aren't MCU-related. Um, again, as we said earlier, this is the start of our second season. Uh, this will be like you know properly into the MCU as as it is known. So with that, we would like to announce that uh, October first, we will be going live with our Patreon. So we're we're hyping you up now to to tell you about it. We'll have several tiers, and we'll have more information as we get closer to uh, our live date. But we will, we are going, we're going to do that, and that will include things like uh, Patreon episodes, 
and that will be great to have people on to talk about MCU stuff. And and as you've noticed, we tangent off into non-MCU stuff all the time, but, you know, that's what we all live for, right? But, so yeah, October 1st, there'll be a Patreon that goes live. Um, and Abby, I believe we've got something else, yeah? Absolutely. We are super, super, super stoked to announce that our show has its first sponsor. While I was looking around, trying to find different avenues to get word of this show out there. One of my local comic shops expressed interest in becoming a show sponsor. So I want to briefly tell you guys about a little comic shop in the humble town of Ocala, Florida, uh, called Bearded Brown Coat. They've got two locations, one in Ocala off of uh, State Road 200. It's really awesome shop. They've got games, comics, tabletop, Video games, consoles, retro gaming, Pokemon cards, literally anything you can think of that you need in the nerdverse, you can probably find at Bearded Brown Coat. Um, They have a ton of back-issue comic books, and it's the shop that I grew up going to. Um, Mike is awesome, he's super friendly, his staff is knowledgeable, and they're going to help you out. There's also a location a little bit south in Bellevue. It's run by his brother primarily. It's a great place. And uh, check it out if you're ever in the Central Florida area. It's worth the drive. Uh, Probably one of the best comic shops in the state of Florida. See? That is awesome. Like, our first sponsor. That is so cool. I love it. Uh, If I lived in Florida, I'd probably be shopping there. I don't, so I can't. But go check them out. I'll just send you pictures of all the awesome first edition books and the rare comics that you can't get because you don't live in Florida. <laughs> all right. So um, other than those two great things that are happening, we don't have any new reviews to read out, unfortunately, which is a shame. Um, but this is where we would normally read those off. You can leave us a review on Apple. Uh, we'll read it if it's a five star or a very funny one star. Um, and you can also review us on Spotify which is where uh, where I think a lot of our ratings are coming from, which is great. We're doing well, very well on that. And you can also reach us on the Robots Radio Discord. We've got the MCU Lorecast channel. Happy to talk about anything. If we could get off of Wolverine, that would be perfect. <laughs> it will never end. Never ends. Beyond those, of course, we've got the Twitter. You can hit us on our Gmail. It's all at MCU Lorecast. And yeah, that's... That's our mid-break for right now. Uh, We also have um, a fun little thing. I was getting all my stuff together in my office because I've been trying to get that all set up uh, because I'm a a professional. I need professional space, right? I found a card game that I'm pretty sure came from Publix, uh, and it was Marvel Comics trivia game, so I thought it'd be fun to test our resident comic expert's knowledge um, utilizing... A very funny tool because I'll tell you, I'll be real honest with you. Some of these questions are a little off the wall and some of them are so easy. It's laughable. So uh, let's see what we've got. All right. Yeah. Hit me. All right. Let's see what we got. Okay. This is a good one for you. This is completely random. Did not. I swear to God, I did not plan this, but here we go. True or false? Beast was the first former member of the X-Men to join the Avengers. True. That is true. And then there's yep. uh, there's another question on here. In what anthology comic did Thor make his first appearance? Oof. You know, I haven't done my Thor 
um, research yet, so... Do you want the multiple choice? I don't. Yeah, give me a multiple choice. A, Tales of Suspense. B, Journey into Mystery. Or C, Tales to Astonish. Journey into Mystery. Ding, ding, ding. Our resident psych is correct. Two for two. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, so that's the end of the mid-break. Psych, hit us off. Let's see where we go from the comic. Okay. Got a lot of firsts Comic here. time. A lot, a lot of firsts, a lot of introductions. Yep, yep. Uh, so, yeah, just bear with us. Uh, I know we have gone so much longer than normal, and I promise I won't take up too much of our time here. So, up uh, first, I'm, I'm going to save the big guy for last, because he ties into the other stuff I talk about. So, up first here is Ho Yensen. Uh, our our poor tragic figure at the start there. He was introduced in Tales of Suspense number 39 in March 1963 by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and Jack Kirby. And the important part of his character is truly nearly all instances of Iron Man's origin include Yensen, and he, like Uncle Ben and Gwen that we mentioned in the other episodes, rarely comes back. Like the OG... Like, so his death is permanent, effectively. Uh, there are some stories involving Jensen's brain uh, at some point, but for the most part, he stays dead. But every time they update Iron Man's origin, there's Ho Jensen to be there in the cave with him to help him build the armor. There's only like one or two origin stories that do not include him, because I believe it's they were for the children's shows and... Ho Yensen just dying is doesn't quite fly for those. No, I don't think a uh, complete character death flies for children's shows. I think that's generally frowned upon. Yeah, typically. All right. Uh, next up, we've got Virginia Pepper Potts. I I don't know where Pepper comes from. Uh, I couldn't find it. So I think it's a red hair. Yeah. Yeah, but she didn't start as a redhead. She was. She had. They redid her model after the first one. Uh, because she bore too much of a resemblance to the secretary that the artist had pulled as a reference for. So they, so, uh, but it, she was introduced in Tales of Suspense number 45 in September 1963 by Lee Heck and Robert Bernstein. And funny enough, she actually has a long romantic history with Happy that occasionally includes Stark. Yeah, she, they got married, they adopted children together. They even tried to have their own children, and we'll talk about Happy here in a second, but that does eventually, like, they got divorced, they got remarried. Really, it's the MCU that completely cuts all of that out, and it's Pepper and Tony. But speaking of Happy here, Harold Joseph Happy Hogan. I, I love how there's so many nicknames here, it's great. Uh, he was also introduced in Tales of Suspense number 45, and... His comic book history is hilarious, and it's it's got all kinds of stuff involving cobalt rays, and it turns him into the freak, which is like some sort of Hulk amalgam thing. It's not quite. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. They eventually do away with it, and Happy just kind of remains the chauffeur of Tony Stark as he bounces from different Stark-related businesses that he starts up. His nickname has a very similar background to Mass Effect's Joker. 
he got called happy because he rarely smiled while he was in the boxing ring. Big boxing fight guy. Like they they'll mention that in the sequel, you know, how happy's in the in the ring a lot there. But yeah, I saw I thought that was a, a cool callback to, you know, stuff that other interests that we have that the idea this that trope of nicknaming somebody the opposite of what they exude. Yeah, that that's not just a a joker thing. We're two for two on the Mass Effect references today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Up next, we've got Jarvis. I'm going to talk about the human Edwin Jarvis here because that's who was who was the model for the Jarvis AI that is here in the movie. So, Edwin Jarvis was introduced in Tales of Suspense number 59 in November 1964 by Lee and Kirby. And he's Stark's butler, and he's he's been around for so long that Captain America considers him more of an Avenger than some of the Avengers. Like, that's how much he sticks through in comic book history. The AI version of Jarvis was introduced in the House of M series, and that release date for the comic book line was in 2005, which is enough time to have somehow influenced this movie, which was released in 2008, and principal photography and everything would have been done in about 2007, maybe late 2006. We will discuss House of M when we get to WandaVision, so I'm not going to get too much into that. Next up is Colonel James Rupert Rhodey Rhodes. Say that three times fast. He was introduced in Iron Man number 118 in January 1979, and that was created by Lynn Kaminsky and Kevin Hopgood. He was only a lieutenant in the comics, uh, and he was kind of retconned into Iron Man's or- origin. He Iron Man finds him kind of in the jungles of Vietnam, and they fight their way out to a helicopter, and they, they both fly out of there. So that's kind of how he gets into it. And in the comics, he's actually Iron Man before he is War Machine. We'll talk about War Machine in the sequel, so I don't want to—I don't want to get too much into it. We'll, so we'll definitely dive more into Rhodes' history behind the wheel of a great armored suit later. But I thought it was interesting that he actually was Iron Man for a couple of years in publication time, as Iron Man dealt with alcoholism. So our next bit—we're kind of moving into our villains here now. We're going to talk about the Ten Rings because I feel like it's an important note here. We're not going to talk about the head of the terrorist organization. That guy kind of changes from retcon to retcon. At this time, for the current MCU, it just fit to have it be an Arab kind of guy. The Ten Rings, this is an obvious Easter egg for Iron Man fans who know anything about his history. Because the Ten Rings are actually a weapon used by the Mandarin, and they are crazy powerful and to me it's a sign that marvel either didn't know or didn't plan to do anything with its mystical side because they throw away the ten rings and we have to kind of retcon later with shang chi and the ten rings movie and it's a sign marvel was in this quasi relationship with paramount they didn't know how successful this was going to be. This could have blown up in their faces. I mean, you know? And so they didn't want to not use it, but they also kind of just were like, well, we want a grounded reality, you know, 
here and now kind of movie, not a high sci-fi fantasy movie. So the Ten Rings get molded into a terrorist organization rather than what they were in the comic books. And that's fine. It worked. And it, it just, it could not have worked. And that could, that would have been, I can't imagine the world as it is without the MCU entertainment line as it is. But I feel like it's a very dark reality, alternate reality. Yeah, I think, especially early on, I think Marvel felt they had a duty to root their movies in reality because they didn't know how well the superhero thing was going to go. So they're like, oh, okay, we can totally still sell rich guy with too much money, does crazy things, builds this suit, and then it's like not a superhero thing, it's an action. And then we didn't really get the high fantasy thing until Thor, but it was really more Shakespearean. And we'll talk about that when we get to Thor, because that's very, very close. But I think like... Like we, like you had said, you know, Marvel rooted this one in reality because in order to get the reception that I think it needed in order to get the MCU off its off its at the beginning, people needed to understand the reality in which the story was taking place. Yeah, I I would agree with that a lot. Now for our last big bad guy, Obadiah Stane, otherwise known as the Iron Monger. Yeah, like, he never calls himself that in the movie. Uh, there's the one line during that scene in front of the arc reactor after Tony's gotten back where, you know, Tony's already made the announcement and, and Stane's like, look, we're, we're iron mongers. We're weapons manufacturers. What else are we going to do? And that's really the only time that, that those two words are in the movie. He doesn't call himself the iron monger as a villain. But Stane was introduced in Iron Man 163 in October, 1982 by Dennis O'Neill and Luke McDonald. And he was introduced as Ironmonger in Iron Man number 200 in November 1985. So that took just over three years to get through uh, in the publication time of, of comic books coming out. In the comics, he was never a friend of the family or anything. He was always a villain. He was trying to take over. At that time, it was uh, Stark International. He was a much more ruthless, even more ruthless sociopath businessman kind of thing i mean it was the 80s it was okay to hate wall street businessmen and that's what he kind of embodied he would later die at his own hands after being defeated by stark and other villains would carry on the ironmonger name but even stain like yenston and uncle ben wouldn't be really brought back he gets brought back as in uh, in some uh, other afterlife kind of comics but he is never brought back as a main villain for Stark to fight permanently. So his death is also rather permanent. So that was that was a good segue onto the movie's part to, oh, we're going to kill Obadiah Stane. Well, he's actually dead in the comics anyway, so that's kind of okay. It was a shame that we wasted Jeff Bridges' great portrayal of the character, but the truth is, Stane dies, so that's it. I, I don't think... Uh, as, as, even as good as Bridges was in that role, I just I don't think that there was much more for uh, Ironmonger to give. I don't think he would have fully carried the plot of a second film on his own. I don't know if necessarily I, I it, it would have been kind of like the Spider-Man thing where Harry Osborn as the Green Goblin probably couldn't have carried a whole movie as the villain on his own. Uh, he needed Doctor. He needed Doc Ock there to bolster it. Yeah. 
had he stayed, you know, alive, that changes too. And maybe that means Ironmonger teams up with Whiplash, which, you know, that really wouldn't have hurt. And let's introduce the big guy. Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, introduced in Tales of Spence number 39 in March 1963 by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, Don Heck, and and Jack Kirby. What an iconic lineup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lieber ended up having to take kind of the lead on writing because Stan Lee came up on an emergency deadline and he had to kind of like pass the reins off. Kirby did the covers while Heck handled kind of the rest of it and but the four of them came together to create one of the most iconic now characters in pop culture history everyone knows who iron man is at this point yeah i loved the callback in the movie to this this bodyguard because for years stark would pretend to be this bodyguard of himself in the iron man armor the movie played with that and i thought that was fun and then they just move right on past it. Like, yeah, that's a nice nod. Now, Tony Stark, I am Iron Man. Done. Lee wanted to create a quintessential capitalist for the fans of Marvel to to go against them. Because at the time, it was the height of the Cold War. It was the height of hate on the military. And so... Lee wanted to create this character that was everything the readers of Marvel hated, shove it down their throats, and make them like it. And he succeeded in doing so. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a direct quote from him about shoving it down their throats. I thought that was real interesting. He created Stark to explore Cold War military industrialist themes, and he stuck with that for a, quite a while. That rooting of the time to the character that would go on to shape him when it needed the reboot in the nineties. And like, he was part of that. And then in here in, you know, 2008 part of the war on terror that, that the U S was waging at the time that those themes are core to Tony Stark and Iron Man. Like it doesn't get quite as, it doesn't get quite as explored in the comics now because he's been around since the cold war right but in the you know for the movies that's still very much a part of who he is thoughts on the wars at the time is your own <sighs> how how do i phrase these so we've got uh, you know at the time of the release of these movies we've got a huge distrust of the military and the politicians at the top right because it's it's 2008 it's an election year. We've all come to the conclusion that the current leaders of the world had lied about WNDs in the Iraq region. That shapes our colorings of everything, right? That shapes how we see policies and politics and politicians and the military. And the military kind of needed, I'm going to say, like a, a boost. And I think that's why they let so much of this movie go through. This movie had to go through the DOD's Entertainment Media Unit, the EMU. The <laughs> so EMU. the DOD EMU. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just I'm just picturing a bird in like combat fatigues. <laughs> a big EMU. In I combat believe it. Fatigues. That's why it paints the military as as good as they as good as they can get it because they want people to sign up for a war that the public is like. 
Oh, hey, you've been lying to us about the whole time. Cool, bro. That's an important thing for us to be thinking about, even as we're watching this movie 14 years after the fact it's come out. That's where we were when it came out. I think uh, it definitely reminds us that these scenarios are not so far outside the scope of what is actually potentially possible. We are never more than a couple of scientific or technological advances away from a, a leap forward like something similar to an Iron Man suit, say, would for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Like, And there's advancements being made all the time in exosuits and uh and armor overall uh we're not still i wouldn't say we are at iron man level but uh, if anyone's familiar with mech warrior we're getting kind of there uh i wouldn't say within the next while Uh, that was very descriptive i'm not but yeah giant metal suits for uh warfare purposes why not we're not terribly far off and, and, you know, I, I have to say, uh, my high school, we had a robotics team, right? And I'm now, I am now six years removed from my senior year of high school. And even in those six years since watching high school robotics matches and whatever, uh, I have seen so much improvement even in just the high school robotics scene uh, in what people are able to achieve even with basic robotics and then moving on up. The advancements in advanced biotic, uh, biotics, but robotics, uh, it's just incredible. And that's why I say I don't think it's really so far-fetched to say we wouldn't be that far away from something like Iron Man. Yeah, uh, the most sci-fi part of the Iron Man suit is its power source, the, the arc reactor. And that's, honestly, it's one of the holdbacks for something like an Iron Man suit, is keeping it portable and also giving it the mobility, and also keeping it powered long enough to actually be useful. And then it's like, right now, also we can't like give the operator severe cancer or diseases, or because I'm sure there are plenty of things that could feasibly power a source like that, but the radiation and the, the other lovely things that might go with would not be so lovely for the operator. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's... That's kind of, it's where we were. It's where we are. Um, uh, having done this research on Iron Man and some of the characters like like Pepper, um, and I actually never bought an Iron Man comic. Uh, I'm like I've got two shelves dedicated to like X Men. I've got an entire shelf dedicated to Spidey. The rest is uh, Avengers and and some other books that are related to either Spider Man or the X Men. But I never picked up any solo series uh, Iron Man comic. And after reading several of these stories and whatnot, I'm like, hmm, great. I I already don't have money, but I might as well spend what little money I've already got on some Iron Man comics. I'll, uh, I'll send you some pictures of what is in stock at Bearded Brown Coat. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> That's all I've got. Did you have any last questions? You know... Uh, I think like with the X-Men, we have two more, and and like with Spider-Man too, we have two more Iron Man films to uh, continue to wax poetic about our favorite genius billionaire playboy philanthropist. So I kind of want to, I want to save further discussion because I I mean, we're not, obviously we're not done with Tony Stark. He's going to show up in like a dozen more films, uh, solo and otherwise. So I, I think 
I think we'll have plenty to discuss uh, later, but I, I'm, I'm just, uh, it's kind of exciting to step into the second season and, and to grow the show and really fun to officially be within the MCU. Cause I think now we're moving into uh, a zone where I'm a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, on that note, lovely listeners, you have a great time and we'll catch you next time. See ya, everyone. As we all know, when it comes to making a movie, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to make that movie magic happen. And it is no different when making a podcast. Welcome to the credit section of the MCU Lorecast. Captain Shanko and I would like to personally thank the following for their incredibly hard work and faith in us to get this podcast rolling. Tom, the head of the Robots Radio Network, for hosting and mentoring. In 7 Legend of the Mass Effect Lorecast for inspiration. Genesis and Vervada of the Two Girls One Ship podcast for introducing us. Let's Not, a fellow tabletop gamer and friend for the amazing artwork. Pipe Men, a veteran and friend for the outstanding music. Our significant others for believing in and supporting us through this. And you, our fans without whom this would be a vanity project. Let us know how we're doing by leaving us a review on Apple or a rating on Spotify. And to quote Stan the Man, enough said. Ever wanted to be a content creator but had no clue where to begin? Come join me as I sit down with content creators that have already faced the challenges you're up against as they discuss the tips and tricks that help them be successful. Here on The Content Creator's Guide, available wherever podcasts can be found.